Welcome to the MHU podcast. There are four of us who are participating in this podcast. Uh, Our names are Justin, that's me, then Patrick, and Austin, and Elaine. This podcast, um, at least the next several episodes, are going to be part two of our class, Can We Trust the Gospels? So last semester, we held a, a class at Mercy House that was all about whether we can trust the Gospels. And we looked at the historical evidence surrounding different uh, events that take place in the life of Jesus, according to the Gospels. We started with the infancy narratives, and then we worked our way all the way up to the point when Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. This semester, we're picking up uh, about where we left off last time, but we've sort of transitioned from a class format to a podcast format. And today will be episode one of part two of this class, Can We Trust the Gospels? And we will be focusing on the death of Jesus and the historical evidence surrounding that. Uh, Today, Patrick is going to lead us through uh, some fascinating information about the very end of Jesus' life, his very final hours. Uh, So, Patrick. All right, so last time when we taught this class, we kind of looked at like everything leading up to Jesus' death and resurrection, right? We looked at like all the stuff he did in his ministry, the miracles, the uh, sermons that he preached, and uh, we were sort of focused on how can we know that these are, these gospels are good historical accounts of what actually happened, what Jesus was actually doing Uh, So we're going to kick off with that kind of question again, but starting from the point of his death and looking at the resurrection and some of the events following that. And I'm just going to kind of remind or uh, tell people about a couple different views that you might have with respect to that question. Like, are these uh, good historical accounts? We were talking about one view that says basically, yes, These are trustworthy historical accounts written by people who were eyewitnesses to the events or who knew eyewitnesses to the events. Uh, We we were calling that the trustworthy view. It's a view that, yeah, these are trustworthy historical accounts. And then you've got uh, the untrustworthy view, the view that these are untrustworthy accounts that says, oh, these were written much after the fact or by people who did not see what happened and didn't know anyone who saw what happened. Um, and for various reasons, they're making stuff up. Today, we're going to look at what the Gospels say about Jesus' death, about his crucifixion and burial, in particular, in his uh, trial before Pilate, and what, in the particular details, might tell in favor of either the trustworthy or the untrustworthy view. So that's a little bit of context. So... You know, you might have this basic question, like if you're talking to somebody on the street who says, yeah, probably there was a guy, Jesus, who did some good things. But like, did all that stuff about the crucifixion really happen? Did he really go before this Roman guy, Pilate, and have this trial and get sentenced to crucifixion and all that? 
Well, it turns out that this is a really, really well-attested event, the crucifixion and the, and the trial with Pilate in particular. So not only is it attested in the Gospels, all of them, and in Paul's epistles, and in the ancient secular sources, Tacitus, Josephus, Lucian, and Maraben Serapion. Well, the original text of uh, the so-called Testimonium Flavanium from Josephus' Antiquities uh, was redacted by Christians, but there's an Arabic version that probably reflects what Josephus originally wrote, and it says the following. So this is Josephus saying this. At this time, there was a man who was called Jesus, and his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous, and many people from among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die, and those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets have recounted wonders. And Tacitus also, in his annals, records the same, well, not the same exact thing, but he also talks about uh, Pontius Pilate. And uh, so we have quite a few different people attesting to the trial and the fact that Jesus was crucified. Yeah, so, and I think uh, it's it's good to emphasize you know, that these people are not Christians, right? right? Yeah. Josephus so, and yeah. Tacitus. Tacitus. Uh, so Tacitus was a Roman historian. Josephus was a Jewish historian. Right. So these aren't like people in the early Christian community saying, promoting the Christian story, right? These are people who have no vested interest in the Christian story, just reporting things that they apparently took to be true. Yeah, so it's one thing to say that, like, a lot of people reported that this happened. It's another thing to say, well, a lot of Christians reported that it happened, but also some non-Christians who had no vested interest in the truth of the Gospels. What do you mean by that the, the Christians retracted it? Oh, oh yeah, so this text, the Testimonium Flavanium, or Flavianum, excuse me, from Josephus Antiquities. So he wrote this thing, Josephus wrote this thing, Christians... Uh, some early Christians later took it and uh, and basically edited the text. Oh, okay. So when I mentioned that there was an Arabic version that probably re- reflects the original, it's nice because it's saying this is what Josephus himself was telling us about uh, the events surrounding Jesus' crucifixion. Mm-hmm. I guess it's also important to note that the gospel accounts get the legal, regional, and cultural history surrounding the crucifixion rite in a lot of ways. I'm not going to go into all of those ways. Um, we know that Pilate was a, a prefect at Judea. We know that the way that Roman law was practiced fits the way that the that Jesus' trial under Pilate goes remarkably well. There are a lot of little tidbits in the Gospels that... Uh, historically just fit very well. So that's something that I think is very important. It also is something that uh, if we were to go through all the details would take a lot of time. So I think I'm going to pass some of those by for today. All right. So let's like dig into some of the details of the account of Jesus trial a little bit. There's a nice little undesigned coincidence between 
a passage in Matthew and a passage in Mark, uh, well, on the one hand, and a passage in Luke on the other. So let's take the Matthew passage and the Luke passage. Could you first remind us what an undesigned coincidence is, Patrick? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So um, I actually have this quote here from Lydia McGrew that describes undesigned coincidences, and I feel like that would be a, a good way to introduce the concept or remind anyone who's familiar with it. So she says, an undesigned coincidence is a notable connection between two or more accounts or texts, texts, excuse me, I've got a little cold, that doesn't seem to have been planned by the person or people giving the accounts. So despite their apparent independence, the items fit together like the pieces of a puzzle. An undesigned coincidence provides reason to believe that both or all of the statements that can contribute to it are truthful. Casual comments, allusions, and omissions that fit together are not what you would find in different fictional or fictionalized works written by different people. But they're not to be expected among different legendary stories that grew, that grew up gradually long after the events. They're the sorts of thing one gets in real witness testimony from people close up to real events. That's the end of uh, Lydia McGrew's quote. So it's basically uh, when you have a couple different statements of different, they can be of different kinds of just casual comments or illusions, like she says, but that sort of fit together like puzzle pieces to explain each other. And it, it, I think it's important that it looks like it wasn't planned. Right. Yeah. So they look like there, there wasn't a plan for, for this, for that explanation to, to occur. Yeah. That's something that McGrew emphasizes. Yeah. I think that the casualness of the comments often does play a role in that respect. Um, if it's a, an offhanded comment here or there, then that's a way that it can look unplanned. All right. So in this Matthew passage, Jesus stands before the governor before Pilate and is asked, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, you have said so. Right, so it looks like, okay, he's accused of being the king of the Jews. Uh, all right, well, this passage in Luke, Luke 1, or excuse me, Luke 23, 1 through 3, says a little bit more. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. So Luke fills in the details of the story a little bit in a way that helpfully explains why Pilate is asking the question he asks in the Matthew passage. Jesus is being accused of saying that he is the Christ. Well, Christ means anointed one. Is that right, Austin? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. So Christ means anointed one. This is sort of code for saying that somebody is a king. And, well, that could be a, a problem for the Romans because to go around claiming that you're a king would be to position yourself as like a political usurper, right? Um, interestingly, Craig Keener points out that it's unlikely the Christians would have made this accusation up, right? Because they would associate them with a political usurper. And 
who wants to be associated with a political usurper, right? This is going to put you in a lot of danger. It's not something that you just aren't voluntarily going to do unless it's likely, unless it's in fact the case. All right. So we know what Jesus was accused of. Well, if he's accused of being a upstart usurper, why wouldn't Pilate want to crucify him? In Luke 23, 4, Pilate says, I've found no guilt in this man. Interestingly, this comes right after not very much of an investigation. Pilate says, are you a king? Jesus says, you said so. Pilate says, well, I don't find any guilt in this guy. So that seems like an odd passage, right? You might think on its own, this is a, this is a sort of weird interchange. Some people have thought Pilate's leniency might have been an invention of the gospel writers in order to place blame for Jesus' death on the Jews, right? You make Pilate look like the nice guy, and then the Jews are going to look like the, the bad people or the good cop, bad cop, or something like that. Well, there are a few different reasons to think that, that that's not a good view, and a, a few ways we can help explain what's, why Pilate would have said that. For one, there's an undesigned coincidence here between that passage in Luke and a passage in John 18. Uh, so in 1833-38, we get a much fuller picture of the conversation between Jesus and Pilate. Pilate asks him about the accusations of the Jewish leaders. Jesus answers him, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? They go back and forth for a while, and Jesus answers him, Well, my kingdom is not of this world. He tells him about what his kingdom is like. It's a kingdom not from the world. And Pilate, but then Pilate says to him, So are you a king? You are a king? And Jesus answers, You say that I am a king. So we find out that that interchange is sort of the end of a longer investigation between Jesus and Pilate, in which Pilate finds out that uh, the kingdom of this guy, he's saying, I'm not a king of this world. I'm not an upstart in the sense that I'm trying to take over Rome or something like that. It also helps to note that, um, as Jesus points out here, his kingdom is not kingdom that encourages his servants to fight. So he says in John 18, 36, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that, you know, if I were an upstart, that we would have been trying to kill your people. Well, Pilate has some evidence that this is true because um, in the garden, when Jesus was arrested, he came peaceably. The one sort of way in which that wasn't true was that Peter attacked the high priest servant, Malchus. But then what did Jesus do? He immediately healed Malchus, right? Adding credibility to his claim that this was not a violent revolution that the kingdom that he's building is not the uh, not a, a kingdom that encourages people to fight and try and usurp the present mm-hmm. uh, king, the you know Roman kingdom. And one thing that Lydia McGrew emphasizes when she talks about that uh, undesigned coincidence is it's like if Jesus hadn't healed Malchus's ear, then that could have been used. I think Tim McGrew talks about this too. That could have been used as evidence against him at the trial, but. Uh, Pilate finds him as like, you know, completely innocent of any kind of military, you know, threat or anything like that. Um, and so that undesigned coincidence seems to confirm specifically the miracle of healing the ear. Nice. Yeah. 
Great. So we have, I think, good reason to think that uh, Pilate would be reluctant to see Jesus as guilty of what he's accused of. We also have a good reason to understand why he's trying to get Jesus to defend himself. Um, This guy, Adrian Nicholas Sherwin White, which is a wonderful name. uh, He, he writes a bunch about the role of Roman law and uh, in the new Testament in this uh, book that he has. He contends that Roman judges did not like sentencing an undefended person. There were policies in place to encourage people to defend themselves, and Pilate's Pilate's reluctance to uh, find Jesus guilty is probably explained by Jesus' refusal to defend himself. That's another reason to think uh, that, or to sort of see that this is why that's going on. I was just thinking about the the contrasts here between Barabbas, who is sort of labeled as a, a kind of rebel rouser mm. and just the, the historical context. And it wasn't that much later, right? 70 AD when you do have an actual revolt, which the Romans put down and basically lay waste to Jerusalem. Um, so in some ways this, and, and you also had the, the zealots at the time, right. Who were kind of espousing this anti-Roman, uh, hopes of anti-Roman sentiments uh, of overthrowing Rome. So in a sense to see that, that it was an unreasonable thing to think that he might be wanting to overthrow Rome. Um, probably a, a lot of Jews felt this way. Um, so the, so there is a, a strong contrast being brought out there. I'm wondering if you know of any, anything about the, his appearance of Pilate that might have been illegal by Roman law. Um, and, only vaguely remembering a book I read years ago called The Illegal Trial of Jesus, and it had to do with um, how his uh, the, his trial at the Sanhedrin was illegal because it was at night, they didn't have enough witnesses, and all these, you know, basically it was saying every step of the way, everything yep. was illegal, and then he was still convicted. Yeah, so this is a, a common accusation um, against the Gospels. Uh, so before his trial before Pilate, Jesus seems to have some kind of a trial before the Sanhedrin, or at least part of the Sanhedrin. And a number of um, critics of the Gospels have pointed out that that trial does not follow standard procedure. It doesn't follow the Jews' own rules. And in a whole bunch of ways, including, and you mentioned some of them, uh, like that they have it take place at night and stuff like that. Um, so, we haven't really talked much about the the trial before the Sanhedrin. We kind of jumped over it and went straight to the trial before Pilate, but I'm glad you bring it up because this is a charge that's worth addressing. Uh, some people have responded to it by pointing out that the rules that the Sanhedrin is supposedly breaking uh, in the way they run this trial is are um, actually known from later sources, and we're not entirely sure that they were... Um, in place in the time of Jesus. That's an tenuous inference that some people are making. And so it could be that those rules just weren't in place then. Mm -hmm. But a a number of other people have pointed out in this, including, if I remember correctly, Sherwin White, that, I mean, we know that the Jewish leadership didn't always follow their own rules, especially when they were, you know, 
doing all their political maneuvering and trying to make sure, you know, so if they're worried about Jesus and the, the Passover uh, celebration is imminent and they're trying to get this done and squared away, uh, they might be willing to bend their own rules in order to get Jesus taken care of and move on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so another really, I think, realistic possibility that various people have pointed to is just that, well, sure, suppose those rules were in place. This just means that they broke their own rules, and we know they did that. They did that all the time. All right, well, let's talk about the crucifixion. Was Jesus crucified? Was that something that early Christians made up? We've already talked about how it's multiply attested, uh, how it's in the Gospels, in the the epistles, and in a number of non-Christian historical reports from the, the... uh, the time. So there's good reason there to think that, no, it's not made up. Um, but there's also good reason from what we'll call the criterion of embarrassment, something that we've talked about in the, in our class before. Can you remind us what that is, Pendra? Yeah. Here, I think I'm actually quoting you, Justin, uh, <laughs> your, your own description of the criterion of embarrassment. It's, it's not my criterion. I did not make up any of it. Yeah, but it's your, descript- your description <laughs> yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so this is when an author reports an event which is likely to have been embarrassing or otherwise uncomfortable for that author, for the author's audience, or for the author's community. Uh, well, in that, those kinds of cases, the report is not likely the author's invention, nor is it likely based on reports which the author swallowed uncritically. Other things being equal, the best explanation of the fact that the author reported the embarrassing event is that it actually occurred. I like to think of this in a kind of Bayesian or probabilistic sort of way. So what is the probability that Christian writers invented that, say, Jesus was a political usurper, given that being associated with a political usurper would likely put your health or life in danger. The probability is low, right? <laughs> so that means that it's not very probable that they invented that. So actually, when we were mentioning the fact that it's unlikely they made up that he was being accused of being a political usurper earlier, that was we were employing the criterion of embarrassment right there. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Well, and the same goes for the cross. Early Christians, this is actually a quote from Craig Keener. He says, early Christians would not have invented this fate, that is crucifixion for their ruler, a fate that posed considerable risks for them as followers, end quote. It was really dangerous to be a loyal affiliate of someone executed by the Romans for sedition. So this goes back to the political usurper point. Um, I'm sure there was also uh, like there's also a point about like honor in there. Like if you wanted to have a glorious leader, you wouldn't want to have that glorious leader be a convicted criminal who hung on a cross. Right. And I think uh, some people have often pointed out as well that it was actually uh, the Jews believed <coughs> on the basis of a passage in the Pentateuch that if you were crucified, um, because that counted as being like hung from a tree, uh, that you were cursed by God. Right. And he just it seems quite implausible to think that the Christians would make up 
the fact that Jesus was crucified, if to their Jewish community, that would mean Jesus is cursed by God. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are other details in there in the, in the account of the crucifixion that also fit the criterion of embarrassment as well. So Keener points out, uh, Jesus was too weak to carry his own cross. Not something you would necessarily want to make up about your, uh, the leader of your faith, that he was weak. Likewise, Segal notes that it would be embarrassing for Jesus' followers to have invented his being mocked. Like somebody who just had to sit there and uh, take insults. Right, so none of this looks make Jesus, makes Jesus look strong or uh, honorable or uh, some, like somebody, someone of the time would want to be affiliated with, which makes it all the more likely that it was being truly reported so, as they... Uh, as well as they could. So also the Gospels get a lot of details right in the crucifixion account. Uh, so just like I was mentioning earlier, how the accounts of Pilate's of Jesus' trial with Pilate get right a lot of the legal, regional, and cultural history. The Gospels also get a lot of interesting uh, history right in their account of the crucifixion. So... For example, I'll just name a few things. Flogging standardly did precede crucifixions. Um, So there's a point in the crucifixion narrative where Simon of Cyrene is forced to carry Jesus's cross because Jesus can't carry his own. Well, this reflects the one fact, the fact that Roman soldiers could make civilians carry things for them, but they had that right. It also reflects the fact that we have good archaeological evidence for thinking that there were a lot of Jews in Cyrene and that many Cyrenians with, uh, na- with Jewish names settled in, Je- in Jerusalem. So, interestingly, Balcom suggests that Mark names Simon's sons, Simon of Cyrene's sons, because they're the sources through whom Simon's eyewitness account of the crucifixion is available to the early church at the time of Mark's writing. It's an interesting suggestion, I thought. Yeah, I thought so too. And this is just a random thing that I'm throwing in. It hasn't come up yet in in our uh, class, but um, that book by Bauckham that uh, Patrick just mentioned, Richard Bauckham, he wrote a book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And uh, it's a really excellent book. And one of the things he does in that book is he, he looks at like the frequency with which different names appear in the Gospels and Acts and compares that to the frequency with which those names appear in our all of our, like our total database of sources about names in uh, Palestine during the time of Jesus and a little bit before and a little bit after. And it turns out the match uh, in the frequency of names is absolutely spot on. It's like almost perfect. So like the most common name uh, is uh, for male Jews is Simon. The most common name for female Jews is Mary. And it's really remarkable. Like the second most common, the third most common, there's a really neat match between the frequency of names in the Gospels and Acts and the frequency of those same names in our broader sources for that period. And specifically for Palestine, because if you go outside of Palestine in that same period, then the name distributions are different. It's great. Um, one other detail in the crucifixion account that the Gospels is a nice little cultural detail that I think is really fun. 
Uh, so this is from Evans, 2012. The statement that the tunic of Jesus was without seam, woven from top to bottom, as well as the soldier's desire not to tear it, seems to imply that a seamless tunic is in some way special. As it turns out, it is. Most tunics were made of two rectangular sheets, sewn together at the top and the sides, with slits for the neck and arms, rather than being without seam. Just a fascinating little uh, anthropological detail right there. All right, so, was Jesus crucified? There's no good reason to doubt the doubt that feature of the accounts, um, or doubt that these accounts are even historical. Well, when was Jesus crucified? So there are two apparent discrepancies worth mentioning between John and Mark on this matter. The first one is over the day on which Jesus died. So what, what day was Jesus crucified? In Mark, Jesus celebrates the Passover Seder with his disciples. He's arrested that same night, and he's crucified the very next day which Mark clearly identifies as the day before the Sabbath. So Mark seems to place the crucifixion on Friday, Friday being the day before the Sabbath. In John, the crucifixion takes place on the preparation day of Passover. It's natural to interpret that as Thursday, given the Jewish understanding of days starting in the evening. Thursday would count as the day before the Passover Seder, And so, presumably, Thursday was the day on which preparations for that Thursday evening meal would be in progress. So, John seems to place the crucifixion on Thursday, Mark on Friday. Well, why should this matter? I mean, you might care about the Bible being consistent, but uh, (laughs) Bart Ehrman, in his book, Jesus Interrupted, defends that uh, this view, that the author of John deliberately moves the crucifixion to Thursday at noon so that Jesus is crucified at the same time the lambs are slaughtered in the temple. So this would be an example of what gets called a theological invention, which is a case where somebody makes something up uh, that didn't actually happen to show that something theologically important holds, uh, say, of Jesus. So uh, John is making up what time the crucifixion occurred to show something theologically important about Jesus, namely that he's like one of the lambs in the temple. Mm-hmm. And of course, the, the worry that this raises <clears throat> beyond just, you know, is John telling you the truth about this day, detail about the day is what, what kind of an author is John? Is he an author that we can trust? Yeah. Historical details or not? Right. So, the, I mean, it goes, it just goes back to the, uh, should we have a, view of these Gospels as trustworthy or as untrustworthy. And if you find that the author is coming up with theological inventions, then that begins to make the the Gospels seem untrustworthy, right? So, did John make this up? Turns out, no. (laughs) Uh, So, both Mark and John place the crucifixion on the day of preparation. Mark explains that this is the day before the Sabbath, What's important to note is that John says that crucifixion happens on the day of preparation of Passover, not the day of preparation for the Passover. So when we were thinking maybe John was saying 
The crucifixion happened on Thursday, with the view that Bart Ehrman and others have defended. That's because we thought when he said preparation day of Passover, we we thought he meant the day of preparing for the Passover. But really, what it looks like he's saying is the day of preparation, namely the one that happens during Passover week, the day of preparation of Passover. And it was on that day that Jesus was crucified. And the day of preparation, Mark explains, is the day before the Sabbath, that is, Friday. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it turns out both John and Mark placed the crucifixion on Friday, on the same day, the day before the Sabbath, Mm -hmm. during the week of Passover. Tim McGrew has a, a nice, I think, helpful illustration here that he uses when he talks about this issue. He talks about how, look, we all know that, you know, Sunday is like the one day of the week where we go to church. And so in one sense, it's a special day of the week. But there are also some Sundays that are like special Sundays, like Easter Sunday. And so um, what McGrew says is it looks like the same thing's going on here in John. Preparation day is the day before the Sabbath. But this one is a special preparation day. It's the one that happens during Passover week. The day before the Sabbath of Passover week. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, John 1931 specifies that it's the day before the Sabbath. Right. Good, yeah. So that fits. So that seems to just fit that. Says he says it was the day, day before of, the Sabbath. It just says it was a day of preparation. <clears throat> and so that the body would not remain on the cross for the Sabbath. Because right. it was a high Sabbath. Yeah. Because it was during Passover. They want to take the bodies down. Yeah. So there's this whole part of the crucifixion narrative. Uh, the reason that they break his legs and stab him with a spear and try and end the crucifixion promptly is because, ah, Sabbath's coming up. We got to get him off this cross and get him buried. Exactly. Yeah. And Sabbath starts at sundown, remember? So mm-hmm. right. if it's yes. midday Friday, they got to get that over with real quick because they want to get it done before Friday evening. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And um, so, so when people like, like Airmen and others try to push the point that there's a, a disagreement between John and the Synoptic Gospels about uh, whether Jesus was crucified on Thursday or Friday. Uh, sometimes they'll point to the fact that in, in the Gospel of John, the Jews, when they come to Pilate, are worried about uh, staying clean for the Sabbath, and that's why they won't go inside Pilate's headquarters. Um, but as uh, Tim McGrew points out, and I'm sure other people have as well, uh, they wouldn't actually be, they can't be worried about the Passover Seder because um, they would be clean as soon as evening came, uh, according to the rules, as long as they washed. And so more likely they're worried about the Hagiga, which was at midday on Friday. And so it turns out that detail actually um, also confirms that John is placing the crucifixion on Friday, just like the synoptics are. Nice. Yeah, so then there's also the part of Ehrman's claim that John edits the hour at which uh, Jesus is crucified, and there is an apparent discrepancy. Mark says Jesus is crucif- or Jesus dies at the third hour, and John says he dies at the sixth hour. So what's going on there? Well, it was typical to keep time only by quarters of the day. It, it's rare that they use anything other than like third, sixth, ninth hour, these kind of intervals. And in this case, John only says about the sixth hour. And the about there is just signaling 
I'm not trying to tell you exactly the time at which he's being crucified. A lot of our temporal locutions are the way that we talk about time. We tend to be vacillate between really being exact and being kind of vague. You know, you might ask what time it is right now, and I'll tell you down to the minute. But then you might ask, when did you go to the store yesterday? And I say, oh, around noon. And it's acceptable if I'm within an hour or something like that. Uh, and in this case, when you're keeping time by quarters of the day, and it's not necessarily that relevant, exactly the minute at which Jesus died, John's just saying, well, about the sixth hour, sometime around then. All right, so we know that Jesus died. We know when he died, despite what some people might uh, say. Well, let's talk a little bit about his burial. Do we know where Jesus was buried? Uh, Maybe you've never heard anything about this, but turns out we actually do. Uh, So the Gospels claim Jesus was buried by the prestigious Jewish sympathizer named Joseph of Arimathea in Joseph's own family tomb. So some people have challenged that this is actually historically accurate on three different counts. So one, typically Romans did not bury crucifixion victims, so it would be unlikely that they would bury Jesus, a crucifixion victim. Uh, Number two, Executed criminals that were buried were interred dishonorably in tombs that were set aside specifically for dishonorable burial. And number three, archaeologists have found very few interred crucifixion victims in in Palestine. Okay, so let's take the uh, the first point first. So the point that Romans did not usually bury crucifixion victims. Well... Jews, we know, insisted on proper proper burial for everyone, even their enemies. And both Philo and Josephus, they both tell us that Romans made exceptions to their own practices to accommodate Jewish customs and laws. So knowing that Jewish uh, custom is to bury everyone, and knowing that Romans would make exceptions, it stands to reason that they would make exceptions even in the case of crucifixion. Jewish law also required Jesus to be buried before the Sabbath, as John uh, indicates in chapter 19 we were talking about earlier, right? That they're worried about getting him off the cross before the Sabbath starts so that uh, he's done and dead and buried. Moreover, there are documented exceptions to the Roman practice. In, uh, For one example, in the Roman Digesta, which is a 6th century compendium of Roman laws. So, that point doesn't, uh, doesn't it's, well, I wouldn't say it doesn't hold water, but it's certainly not a knockdown argument at all. Right. Um, so regarding the second point, that executed criminals that were buried were usually interred in dishonorably in tombs set aside for that purpose. Well, archaeologists have found the remains of at least one individual who was crucified and later interred in a family tomb. Um, So Joseph's position of power, remember he was a very prestigious individual, could have given him the ability to secure the body of Jesus for an honorable burial against the usual Roman practice. That's a very plausible explanation, knowing that it's something that's possible. Mm -hmm. And in fact, um, it's worth mentioning, John Dominic Crossan, in his book on the historical Jesus, Crossan is a very skeptical scholar, um, and in some ways has radical views about the historical Jesus. 
But what he actually suggests is that the Christians made up Joseph of Arimathea precisely so that they could have a plausible story about why Jesus would get interred in um, like a fancy tomb and not just you know treated like any other criminal uh, because they didn't want to say that Jesus was treated like any other criminal. Um, and what's interesting about that is like that solution works if Joseph was a real guy, right? So if we just reject Crossan's assumption that Joseph didn't exist, then Cross has in effect given us an answer to this argument mm-hmm. about like, well, wait a minute. Why would Jesus have been buried with honor? Well, because Joseph of Arimathea had uh, some standing and might have been able to get his weight. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So the third point, archaeologists have not found very many interred crucifixion victims in Palestine. Well, actually, that would be to be expected. The best preserved tombs in Palestine are going to be those of the elite class. And they're not going to be as likely to be crucified as the general public. Moreover, the evidence of someone's being crucified is not as likely to survive, even if the remains of a crucified individual do. So you have to have a very special set of archaeological circumstances to find a the preserved remains of, of an individual and have preserved in those remains evidence of their being crucified. Um and it's not very likely that in such a situation, it would be the rare case of an elite sort of social person being uh, the crucified individual as well. So it's just the archaeological evidence is what you would expect, given the social facts. Hmm. All right, so where is Jesus buried then? Where is this tomb of Joseph of Arimathea? Well, some people have thought it was a place called the Garden Tomb. This is a rock-cut tomb that's adjacent to a location that some people think is the historical site of Golgotha, the place where Jesus was crucified. However, the garden tomb narrative doesn't seem consistent with Jesus' burial in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Why? Well, the garden tomb is centuries older than the the time of Jesus' life and of his death. Well, we know that the family tomb of Joseph of Arimathea was unused at the time in which Jesus was put in it. So it doesn't make a lot of sense for somebody to have a centuries old unused family tomb. Uh, for, for him to have an unused family tomb would be for the, his family to have built this tomb recently and to have plans for the fam- his, him and his family to be put in it when they died. Um, so the garden tomb narrative doesn't really fit with the narrative that Jesus was put in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. We think that he was put in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. So there's better reason to think that actually Jesus's tomb is under the church of the Holy Sepulcher. So I'll tell you a little story about that. In the fourth century, Constantine, Emperor Constantine's mother, Helena, went to Jerusalem in search of Jesus's tomb. She was told that it lay beneath a pagan temple of the god Jupiter. It's a Roman name for the god Zeus. Because Herod Agrippa I expanded the city walls shortly after Jesus' crucifixion, the site of this temple, the temple of Jupiter, lay outside the city in Jesus' day, but was inside the walls of Jerusalem by the time Helena came along. McRae observes, quote, Unless there had been a compelling reason to do so, 
No one in the time of Helena would have looked for the burial site inside the crowded walled city. End quote. Why? Because everyone knew that Jesus was buried outside of the city walls. Yet, that is where she was directed. We also know that there was a steady stream of Christian bishops in Jerusalem, from the early years of Christianity down to Helena's arrival. And those bishops could easily have preserved traditional information about the burial site, and presumably had as much reason to do so as anyone, uh, any Christian would today. Most significantly, when Helena ordered the pagan temple on the traditional site to be destroyed, a tomb was found beneath it. The temple had been standing since it was built by Hadrian in 110, after which there would be no way to know that there was a tomb there at all, because they built the temple right on top of it. So the tradition that Jesus' tomb lay beneath it seems to go back to no more than 80 years after Jesus' death. When the tomb was discovered by Helena, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre was erected on the site and still stands there today though it has been destroyed and rebuilt at least once. And in 2016, archaeologists were privileged with a brief opportunity to examine the tomb that still lies beneath this church. So, great reason to think that Jesus' tomb is under the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. All right, so that's episode one of uh, part two of our class, Can We Trust the Gospels? Uh, Next time, we will be looking at the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Um, And if you're interested in looking at for more information about this, like more than we're able to cover, uh, one of the sources that we rely on pretty heavily, definitely not the only one, uh, but one that we rely on pretty heavily for this information is the work of Tim and Lydia McGrew. So you can Google them and easily find some of the work that they've done on this subject. Uh, Join us next time. 